If you're new, I'm Jamie, one of the pastors here. It is my honor and privilege to invite you to point a Bible to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 18. Luke, chapter 18. Here at Pickle Baptist, we work through books of the Bible a little bit at a time, and we find ourselves in Luke, chapter 18, beginning at verse 9, where we left off a couple of weeks ago. If you're new to the Bible, the chapter numbers are the big numbers and the verse numbers are the little numbers. We'll be starting in verse 9, where uh, it says right under the heading, the Pharisee and the tax collector. What I'll do is I'll read from verse 9 down to verse 14, and then ask for the Lord's help on our time together in this passage, and then we'll work through this passage together, expecting it to take around 45 minutes or so. Luke chapter 18 Beginning at verse 9, hear the word of the Lord. Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, and the other tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, And I give tithes on all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Would you pray with me? Lord, we humble ourselves before you now. Without your Spirit, we have no hope to understand your Word. And so will you, in your mercy and kindness to us, your people, grant that your Holy Spirit would enable us to understand your Word, and that the heart that hears, the ears that hear, and the hearts that receive these words would receive them well. And that these truths would be written upon our hearts and bear fruit from our lives. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. There once was a monk who lived with a crippling awareness of his own sinfulness. And this plagued him night and day. And so, to ease his troubled conscience, 
The monk was extremely devout. He fasted and prayed to the point of exhaustion. He deprived himself from almost every pleasure and luxury. He spent hours in the confessional booth, and still nothing worked. The more he sought to repay God for the debt that he owed, the worse and worse it became. And in the year 1510, this monk was sent from Germany to Rome on official church business. And according to the church, the very staircase that the Lord Jesus Christ himself walked on his way to be tried before Pontius Pilate had been relocated from Jerusalem to Rome. And the church taught that anyone who would scale the holy stairs on their knees would be absolved of their sins. Now, of course, this monk took this opportunity while in Rome to scale the marble steps on his knees, kissing each stair as he went and reciting the Lord's Prayer. When he finally reached the top, he had something of what we might call an out-of-body experience. For he saw himself, a ridiculous-looking, fully-grown man, pressing his lips to dirty stairs and expecting that this would somehow make him righteous before God. And he thought, why would a just and holy God, the creator of the universe, be placated by kissing some marble stairs? And so he left Rome, disillusioned and bewildered and frustrated. This monk hated the righteousness of God. He hated God himself who punished sinners. And some years later, while studying the righteousness of God in the Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans, this monk, whose name is Martin Luther, wrote this, I beat importunately upon Paul in that place, most ardently desiring to know what St. Paul wanted. And at last... By the mercy of God, meditating day and night, I gave heed to the context of the words, and there I began to understand that the righteousness of God is a gift of God. Luther discovered the righteousness of God belonged to God, and it is gifted by God to sinners by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Luther learned that righteousness was not the result of things that we do, but it is the reality of all that Christ has done. It does not arise from us. It cannot be generated by us, but righteousness is alien to us. It is outside of us. It is merely credited to us by faith. And once Luther discovered this about the righteousness of God, he wrote this. I felt 
that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. There, a totally other face of the entire scripture showed itself to me. Luther had learned this from Paul. Paul had learned this from the Lord Jesus. And the Lord Jesus teaches us this in the passage before us today. This teaching, what we call justification by, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, is life-changing, joy-inspiring, freedom-giving. It is fuel for delight-driven obedience to the commands of God. And PBC, when you fully understand this reality, you, like Luther, will be brought into, as it were, the proverbial paradise. And all of Scripture will begin to show a new face to you. So that is my prayer for you this morning. Here's the big idea. Righteousness is a gift of God to be received by faith in Jesus Christ, which humbles the proud and exalts the humble and fuels obedience. The righteousness of God is a gift of God that He gives to sinners by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And this righteousness that is a gift, it humbles the proud, it exalts the humble, and it drives obedience. Three parts to our outline this morning, if you're taking notes. Number one, we will see the posture of the prideful. The posture of the prideful in verses 9 to 12. Number two, we will see the plea of the penitent. The plea of the penitent. And then finally, in verse 14, we will see the point of the parable. The point of the parable. So let's have a look at the text again. The posture of the prideful. The gospel writer Luke sets up the Lord's parable for us in verse 9. Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Luke explains that Jesus told this parable to those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Jesus preached against self-righteousness. Now, the word trusted there in verse 9 is an important word. It means that they had convinced themselves that they were righteous. They looked to themselves and they declared themselves just, right, good with God. They'd lived good lives, paid their taxes, worked hard at their jobs, went to church. And by every metric, they were virtuous, moral, decent individuals, living upright lives. Perfect? No. But good, honest folks. The self-righteous. 
Now, the world of the self-righteous is a meritocracy. And I have what I have because I have earned it. I worked harder. I've done more. I've given more. I've stayed longer. My life works because I make good decisions and I keep things in order. Jesus could have told this parable to anyone throughout human history. It's just as relevant to us today, 2,000 years later, as it was to Jesus' audience. Self-righteousness is in the air we breathe. Our society brags about uniqueness and individuality. Well, the self-made man is an American folk hero. I do things my way to get the life I want. I work hard to get the life I want. But don't you see, this is exactly the same thing as a monk on his knees kissing marble stairs to atone for his sin. Self-made righteousness does not make one right with God. But it does create a contempt for others. Luke says these self-righteous treat others with contempt. So from, from their place up high on Morality Mountain, they look down on those below. Well, they have to. How, how, high, how will I know how high I've climbed except by the people that I've passed along the way? Self-righteousness must have someone to compare itself against. The gold medal is meaningless unless there's a silver medal and a bronze medal. Besides, when confronted with sin, self-righteousness needs someone to point to and say, at least I'm not as bad as him. One telltale sign of self-righteousness is an aversion to empathy. The single mom is simply a product of her own stupid choices. I don't make stupid choices, and so why would I empathize with her? This is America. If you're poor, it's because you're lazy. You don't work hard. You're bad with money. And so why would I help you when helping you would just keep you from learning the lesson? Do you want an easy way to spot self-righteousness in your own heart? The next time you hear, or well, if he would have, there it is. It's any part of you that when you hear of the suffering of others, doesn't go, but for the grace of God, there go I. That's the contempt for others, a symptom of self-righteousness. So, brothers and sisters, when you recognize this in your own heart, repent of it, turn from it, and ask the Lord to humble you. 
Self-righteousness will justify contempt for others by appealing to its own deeds. And this is exactly the kind of thing that we see in the example of the Pharisee in Jesus' parable. Let's read verses 10 to 12. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, the other was a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and he prayed like this, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Two men went up to the temple to pray. So a Pharisee and a tax collector. Now I'll remind you what a Pharisee is. Pharisee is, in Jesus' day, the religious elites. No one cared about the Bible more than the Pharisees. No one was devoted to the law of God more than the Pharisees. These were experts in the Bible, teachers of the Bible, highly devout They never missed church. They never missed a prayer meeting. They commanded great respect among the people. That's the Pharisees. Now, the tax collectors, they didn't command respect. These these people were reprehensible. It's it's hard for us Americans to find a corollary for a tax collector. So, So how can I put it? Imagine Hamas takes over America. And Americans are allowed to live and to worship as they please as long as they pay taxes to Hamas. And all of the accountants in America work for Hamas. And your accountant is your IRS agent who makes commission off of the taxes you pay to Hamas. And he overcharges you and skims off the top. And this makes him very rich. That's a tax collector, a traitor to his own people. Verse 11 says that the Pharisee prays at the temple. Jesus says he prays by himself. He stands by himself so that he doesn't blend into the crowd, so that he can be seen by the crowd. He wants those around to see what a truly righteous man he is. And he prays like this. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. I'm not an extortioner. I'm not unjust. I've never committed adultery. I'm not like this tax collector. He's trusting in himself that he is righteous. And he's looking at others with contempt. Now, I don't want you to miss this very important and probably a little shocking point. Who does the Pharisee credit with his own righteousness? God. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. (laughs) That's good theology. This man is giving credit to God for his own sanctification. He might as well say, along with the Apostle Paul in Philippians 2, that it's God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. This man is sanctified. He's set apart. I'm not like other men. 
He's a Pharisee, and he had earned that title. The word Pharisee means separated one. And here he is, separated, standing by himself at the temple of God, a Pharisee of Pharisees, a Hebrew of Hebrews. He does not extort for a living. He's the kind of fellow who earns all that he has. He's not unjust. He gives all their due. He pays all of his bills on time. He pays his employees what they're due. He pays his contractors what they're due, what they're worth. He's faithful to his wife. This is a strong family man. You can almost picture him at home helping to educate his children, catechizing them, teaching them the scriptures, causing them to memorize God's word. Do you see the picture that Jesus is painting of this man? I fast twice a week. Now for the Jew, fasting was only commanded one day per year. Our boy does it a hundred times more than that. Why wouldn't God favor such devotion? Why wouldn't God bless such, such obedience? This man withholds the pleasure of food two times a week just to show his devotion to God. I give tithes on all that I get. So he makes a budget. He, takes, he lives on 90% and he gives 10% of his wages to the Lord. 10% of everything he gets. 10% of his paycheck. If he gets a bonus at work, it's 10% of the bonus. If he has a good harvest in his garden, 10% of his harvest. If he's walking around in the parking lot at Walmart, he picks up a quarter, two and a half cents gets added to next week's giving. 10% of all that I get. In the religious system of the first century, this man is making the Pro Bowl for sure. His spiritual resume is top shelf. And who wouldn't want to know someone like this? Who wouldn't want such a Bible-believing, holy, dedicated man as this, as a neighbor, as a fellow member of your church, as a pastor of your church? But as verse 14 tells us, He's not right with God. He doesn't go down to his house justified. Now hold up, Jesus. What gives? And here's a guy going up to the temple to pray. Who commanded people to pray? You did. Who, is a man, who commanded us not to be like the world. You did. Who commanded us, thou shalt not lie? You did. Who told us to not commit adultery? You did. Who instituted the fast? Who commanded the tithe? You commanded all this. And yet none of this man's devotion counts for anything. But none of that is wrong. Isn't that what a good follower of God is supposed to be like? I protest. So something's off. Something's missing. Go ahead, look closer at the man's prayer. 
Yes, he gives credit to God for his righteousness. But notice the frequency of the word I in his prayer. It appears no less than five times. I thank you. I am not like other men. I fast. I tithe of all that I get. Sure, he gives the nod to God. But deep down he knows who did what in his own righteousness. He's looking at himself and what he has done as the basis of his status with God. What is the evidence that he's right with God? It's his obedience to the commands of God. It's his keeping of the law of God. It's his living separate from the wicked. And his is the posture of pride. He trusts in himself that he is righteous. How different the Pharisee's prayer from the prayer of the tax collector. For the Pharisee showed the posture of pride, but the tax collector shows the plea of the penitent. Let's have a look at verse 13 again. But the tax collector standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Well, the contrast could not be more acute. The Pharisee stood alone. The tax collector stood far off. He's on the fringe. And why? Well, because he's aware of his own sin. He didn't feel worthy to be in the presence of God, and so he would not draw near. He knows that he's a sinner. In fact, he calls himself the sinner. He's an extortioner. He's unjust. Perhaps he's even an an adulterer. There's no indication that he fasts twice a week or gives 10% of all that he has. Jesus says the tax collector wouldn't even lift his eyes to heaven. His head had fallen under the weight of his guilt. Shame had caused his head to drop and he can't even lift up his eyes when he prays. Rather, Jesus says he beat his breast. Now, if you've been watching football this weekend, then you probably have seen sports people beat on their breast. But it's for the exact opposite reason as this man. This gesture expresses extreme sorrow and anguish. The tax collector is in deep distress over the guilt and shame of his sin. This, this posture is not prideful, but penitent. The sinner is truly convicted of his sin, and he grieves it. 
Now, in one of the Apostle Paul's letters to the Corinthians, Paul distinguishes between worldly grief and godly grief. So if you have time this afternoon, read through 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Worldly grief and godly grief. Worldly grief will change behavior only to prevent the discomfort of the consequences of sin. But so long as the, the consequences of sin are rather minimal, as long as sin can remain hidden, then the sinner won't change. It's worldly grief. They're not repentant. But godly grief, on the other hand, beats the breast. Paul says, it produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Like the tax collector, godly grief feels sorrow over sin. It is in anguish over what has been done. Not just because of the consequences to themselves, but mainly because of how their sin belittles the Savior and makes a mockery of the law of God and how it harms others. There is no repentance, there is no salvation without godly grief. And this is what the tax collector has. And what does he do with his godly grief? He takes it to God. And that's the right place to go. That's the right place. Will he need to be made right with others? Will he need to make right by others? Yes, he probably will. But first and foremost, he must be made right with God. And so he comes to God with nothing. Nothing but his sin. His prayer is basically four words in the original. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. The phrase, be merciful, is one word in the original, and it's a very, very important word. It's the word propitiation. It means to make atonement. To become favorably inclined by removing the thing that stands between us. The Bible teaches that sin separates us from God and it must be atoned for. And so it's not enough to feel bad for sin. It's not enough to confess sin. A price for sin must be paid. Now, at the temple, where this man is praying, such an atonement took place. On a special day, every year, the Day of Atonement, the priests of God would take two goats into the holy place. One goat they would slaughter, and its blood would be spilled to, to pay for the sins of the people. The other goat, the priest would lay his hands on the goat and confess upon the goat the sins of the people. And the sins of the people would then be conferred upon the goat and it would be cast out of the city. Banished into the wilderness. And the tax collector is effectively saying, God, 
make atonement for me, the sinner. He is asking God to make the atonement. He's not saying, what do I got to do? What do I have to do to atone for my sin? He's saying, God, you atone for my sin. How different his prayer than that of the Pharisee who never once mentioned sin, who boasted in his own deeds as the basis that he's right with God. The tax collector looks to nothing in himself, but everything in God. God, you make atonement for me. I have a major problem, and I can't do anything about it. you got to do something about this. In the original, he says, God, make atonement for me, the sinner. A doggone ESV. It's the sinner. So this is more than just recognizing, well, we're all sinners. This is more direct. Make atonement for me, the sinner. It's personal. This man has recognized his own guilt, his own wrongdoing. There's no everyone does it clause. There's no, at least I'm not as bad as him clause. There's no, well, I could have done it a little differently clause. Well, I didn't have to be so harsh clause. It's simply... God, make atonement for me, the sinner. And here, our Lord lands the parable. Let's read it in verse 14. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Do you know how shocking that would have been to Jesus' audience to hear that the tax collector went down to his house right with God rather than the Pharisee? I mean, the Pharisee looked so good on the outside, didn't he? I mean, so much evidence that he was following God the right way, the way you're supposed to. But Jesus said, he's not even right with God. And the tax collector had nothing in himself to commend him to God, and yet he was made right with God. Now, that word justified in verse 14 is one of those great big Bible words that every Christian must understand and must be able to communicate. Justification is a legal declaration by God upon the sinner that he or she is righteous. Justification is the declaration of God upon the sinner that he or she is righteous. 
God looks at the evidence and acts like a judge and declares, not just innocent, just. Righteous. And the Bible teaches that justification is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And this means that this act of God, this justification of God, is an act of grace. The grounds of their justification is not in themselves, but the imputed righteousness of Christ. The righteousness of Christ, all the right things that Jesus did and was, is imputed, accredited to the sinner by faith. As if the sinner had earned it themselves. And so the tax collector prays, God, make atonement for me, the sinner. And that's just what God did. That God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to be the atonement for the sinner. That Jesus' blood was atonement for sin. That his death was the payment for sin. In the temple, the priest lays his hand on the goat and transfers the sins of the people onto the goat. You know what happened at the cross? God made him who knew no sin to be sin. That the sin of God's people would be Credited to Christ as if he committed them. And then he would die in the way that the goat was banished. Jesus would be banished from life into the grave. So that we might become the righteousness of God. The essence of the gospel is that God credits His people with the righteousness of His Son. That when they turn to God, like this tax collector, looking to Him to make atonement, He declares them righteous! And the justification of his justification is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So if, if, if you're here and you're not a Christian, you've probably heard or you probably think that if you're a good person, and you do a lot of good things, not perfect, but you're, you're not a bad person. At the end of your life, God will receive you into heaven, whatever that is. Oh, well, my friend, that is a lie. 
That is a lie. Who, who, tell me who can be better than the Pharisee? Who does better than this Pharisee? And we just heard from Jesus Christ himself. He's not justified. He's not right with God. And you need to know the truth. There's only one way to be made right with God. Only one way to be made righteous before God, and that is to turn to Jesus Christ by faith. Repenting of your sins and trusting in Him. Taking hold of Him. And friend, if you've never done that before, do that today. Do that before you leave this place. Whoever invited you to church, talk with them after, over lunch. If you came alone, I'll be standing by those double doors back there. Talk to me. I'd love to get to know you, pray with you, and tell you more about being made right with God through Jesus Christ. This parable is so important to all of us because all of us are the sinner in this parable. It says justification is not on the basis of anything that we've done, no matter who we are, no matter what we've done, no matter how heinous our sin is, All of us can know with absolute certainty that no matter what we've done, no matter who we are, no matter how heinous our sin, we can be made right with God through Jesus Christ. And that puts all of us on the same level. And we can all pray, like the tax collector, God, make atonement for me, the sinner. That's the point. That everyone who exalts himself, who looks to himself to be righteous, will be humbled. And everyone who humbles himself, like this tax collector, and says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, will be exalted. God justifies the sinner on the basis of grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Nothing in us, nothing. And so you might be wondering, I hope you are, well, what about obedience? Well, what the heck, pastor? If that's true, I'm just going to go live however I want. I'm just going to indulge in all the sins that I've been withholding for myself. Why would I fast twice a week? I love food. Why would I give 10% of all that I get? Bad business. What about obedience? Can't I just sin lest grace abound? Well, if you've read the book of Romans, then you know the answer is no. But why is it no? Why? We obey the commandments of God, not to be justified, but because we already are. The Pharisee kept the commands of God, not for God's sake, but for his own. His religious devotion was a way to prove himself to God and to others that he was good. But the Christian has been credited with goodness already. 
credited with the very righteousness of Christ. And so he obeys. So think of it like the roots of a tree and the fruits of the tree. The roots of the tree draw nutrients from the soil that they use to produce the fruits of the tree. And the roots of our justification is the finished work of Christ. And the fruit of our justification is our obedience to God's commands. It's the difference between root and fruit. So obedience does not produce your justification, but justification produces your obedience. Because of who God is, because of what God has done for us in Christ, we delight to be like Him, to live for His glory. We keep His commandments out of joy for who He is. We fight temptation because sin belittles God's glory and dulls our joy in Him. We keep the commandments of God because we have already died to sin and have been made alive to righteousness. We've been given the privilege to spend our whole lives and all of our affections increasing in our satisfaction and delight in God, who is the source of our joy. We've been united to Christ. And so what is true of Jesus is true of us. We obey God because we've already been declared obedient to God. You follow? So we obey the commands of God, not for our sake, but for His. And if you're curious about how all of that works, let me just encourage you to come back next week as we consider another element of justification. There's no amount of climbing marble steps that can atone for your sin. And the reality is, Christian, there is no need. Because those marble steps, whether they're in Jerusalem or Rome, have already been climbed by someone already. All you need to do is turn to the one who climbed them and to receive the declaration of God that you are righteous. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we give you praise for all that you have done for us in Jesus. We thank you for sending Jesus to purchase our redemption and for paying the penalty of our sin and securing our salvation. O risen Lord Jesus Christ, please receive our thanks for your willing sacrifice on our behalf. To you truly belongs all the power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. But yet we confess, Father, that we have tragically misunderstood the nature of our salvation. For often we look to ourselves that we're righteous. Often we're so much like the Pharisee in this parable. Often we treat one another with contempt. We have believed ourselves better and wiser than others. We've not been patient. We've been prideful. Will you forgive us? Lord, humble us. Keep us from exalting ourselves. And let us look to the Lord and to the Lord alone for our justification. So that we don't look down on others, but lift them up.
so that we don't congratulate ourselves that we're better than others, but so that we would humble ourselves and help others. In Jesus' name we ask, amen. Please stand to your feet. Since everyone in this room has exalted themselves and looked to themselves as they're righteous, let us turn to the scriptures for an assurance that we've confessed our sin and then the Lord is just to have pardoned us. So the assurance of pardon this morning comes from the text that Steve read at the opening, Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 15. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you.